Listeners, start your engines. Franchise Detour, it's episode 68. Rob here. On this episode, we're closing out, maybe, that's all I'm going to say about that, our X-Men mega series with the 10th X-Men film released by Fox, 2019's Dark Phoenix. I'm joined by Darren Lundberg of Nostalgia Cast, past and future guest, always fun having him on. And it was really interesting to discuss this movie, which is the second time we've done this storyline on this podcast and in the X-Men film franchise in general. So did they nail it this time around? Did they make all different mistakes? We'll get into that. As always, you can find more episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, and other podcatchers, as well as CrookedTable.com. Go ahead and give us a rating or review wherever you're listening to this episode. For now, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer and then jump into our conversation about 2019's Dark Phoenix. Why did you make me do that? Look at me. Focus on my voice. I'm not giving up on you, Jean. She was my friend. You're my family, Jean. Stop. No matter what. Stop. Stop. Stop! Look. You're special, Jean. And if you stop fighting that force inside you, if you embrace it, you will possess the very power of a god. Welcome to Franchise Detours, where we believe no movie series travels in a straight line. On this episode, uh, we have reached the end of the road, essentially, of the X-Men franchise. Ten films spanning nearly 20 years of these Marvel mutants and their wacky adventures through time, through you know, spin-offs and, and contradictions and multiple versions of the same story, speaking <laughs> of. <laughs> this episode, we're going to be talking about 2019's Dark Phoenix, which interestingly was released as Dark Phoenix before it was yeah. sort of uh, advertised as X-Men Dark Phoenix. I think sort of just a, an attempt to to remind, to you know, get the word out about this movie. Like, just in case you, this is an X-Men film, if you missed it, <laughs> like, go <laughs> right. see it. It's, it's not doing well in theaters, um, which we'll get into. But I am honored to welcome to the show D.W. Lundberg of Nostalgia Cast. Welcome to the podcast, sir. Hi, Rob. This, what is this, like our 4th, 5th, 17th? I don't, I don't know. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> so ironically, ironically, this is the, the last of the X-Men megaseries, but this is also, I think, the first one I had on the books. Like, when I was talking about doing this, you were we were going back and forth, and I think you mentioned something like, I could probably defend Dark Phoenix. I was like, okay, yeah. good, because I'm going to need <laughs> some some positivity right. for for this episode. So I'm glad... Glad to have you here, and, and specifically for this film. 
Yeah, I think it was me like trying to just shoehorn my way into like yeah. another <laughs> franchise detour. Well, we talked about the Dark Knights, and now we had to talk about the Dark Phoenix. I think that's also they complement each other a little bit. Yeah, and uh, you know, <laughs> I, I think like maybe I think you gave me my choice of maybe X two or the, my favorite ones, and I had X two or Days of Future Past to choose from, and then it was like, it was, I think we decided like not with words that well you talk the dark knight so why don't we give other people a chance to talk about the good ones <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> and then yeah i was like this is i uh you know i know for a fact that people hate this movie and so i was like well if you want somebody that could kind of find some positive things that, to say about it I, i'll be your guy and so yeah i think that was exactly how it turned out yeah no 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 that's good that's good this is a in a franchise that and this is part of why i selected doing the x-men franchise in a franchise that has widely acclaimed oscar nominated films and movies that just you know elicit a collective eye roll this being one of them uh it, it, you know i i i appreciate your sacrifice in coming on to talk about this one and honestly you know i think there are some interesting things to say about it yeah. So it's, it's good to talk. It's a, it, it, there's more to talk about this one than just, there's one of the franchise entries in particular that I'm like, all I'm going to do is just nitpick that one to death because I hate it. But right. you know, this, this will be a better conversation. Is that X-Men origins? I'm assuming. Oh, one of the yeah. worst, one of the worst <laughs> things I've ever seen. Yeah. Anyway, I think, I think on my, on that episode, my guests and I were just like, I mean, it's not good, but like, Ugh. Wolverine's in it. I mean, it, you know, it's we weren't really defending it. We're just like it tries something. It doesn't, yeah. and it does it badly. But you know, there was, you know, an intention of something that was then <laughs> cast aside a lot of times by the studio. Yeah, well, we in a movie surprised. that's about Wolverine forgetting everything that he's experienced, it's funny that the studio tries to forget that one. Like they yeah. even in, in Days of Future Past, they even incorporated The Last Stand into that one, so they, they sure at did. least respect that one in a certain degree, but not X Men Origins, which is a smart play, I would say. Right? Yeah, definitely. It it just feels like even with X Men Origins, they were just like, you know, we sort of did X Men, we sort of sort of did uh, Logan's past and the whole weapon X thing in flashes and in X two with striker being a pivotal part of that film, but yeah. we're going to do that again. And so when you get to this movie and they're doing dark Phoenix again, you're again like, really, yeah. you guys don't learn your lessons, huh? <laughs> but before we get to X-Men, tell people a little bit about nostalgia cast and everything you guys got going on over there. Well, again, uh, we, Johnny and I are my, my childhood best friend. We uh, grew up on movies. We bonded over movies. And so, uh, about 2016 again, that's when I decided uh, I was done with, I had a blog and I was done with that and I was just feeling kind of lost and then kind of got hooked on the podcasting thing. And like everything else, you try to find a hook. And so about that time was, uh, let's see, there was a bunch of the Ghostbusters, the Lady Ghostbusters and how the cast of that one was attacked. And it was like, well, nostalgia can be weaponized. So I thought that's an interesting topic. So that's where I came up with that. And then the only other person I knew in my sphere was obviously Johnny to join me for that. So we started this podcast in 2016 and we had a good handle on it. And then we kind of lost her way and then we came back and started uh, posting things on youtube and so it's been fun then and then just this recent season instead of covering like 80s movies when we grew up we decided to do a 90s retrospective which again rob you were part of you came on yep. for the matrix and that was a great conversation and that's the whole season it's like why talk about movies that we can barely muster in our energy for let's talk about movies that we're nostalgic for but we also love and can just talk about and talk about and talk about and so it's been a great season we have a lot of great guests like i said including yourself so yeah, we're just finishing up. I think we just posted your episode 
as we're recording this. Yeah. I think yesterday. So then we've got a finale and then we're going to take a little bit of a break and then come back with something different. So yeah, that's what we're up to over at Nostalgia Cast. Cool. No, that's great. I mean, it's that is also something that has really evolved uh, and become more prevalent in just since 2016. Just like tapping into nostalgia and like twisting yeah. it. And I mean, as we're at, as of this recording, you know, Barbie is still a thing. It's like a phenomenon sweeping the nation. Yeah, tapping into nostalgia in some part, and also you know bringing in a whole new generation of fans. Everything is a requel and a you know remake, and you know I think that's it's telling that the industry has become even way more dependent on our memories of movies than actually building you know a new and exciting worlds. Yeah, after, you know, <laughs> speaking of weaponizing nostalgia, I mean, that's all that we're doing from the Disney live action remakes to like reboots of TV series. And, you know, it's amazing that Barbie is a standout. Not not that it didn't, doesn't deserve to be. It's, just, it's amazing that it only is used correctly, like the nostalgia baiting. I think that is used correctly. I think Top Gun Maverick used, weaponized its nostalgia perfectly. But mm-hmm. you only have... You know, like those, the, the legacy sequels, stuff like that. It's like, you're, you're just bringing up nostalgia to bring up nostalgia. You're not doing it to tell a new story or give us a new perspective. Or like you said, to rope in new fans, you're just doing things so you can have the Leonardo DiCaprio pointing me, that kind of thing. And that's yeah. not, to me, that's not storytelling and it's not interesting. And so stuff like Barbie or Top Gun Maverick or, uh, you know, there's, there's some other examples out there. Those are the things that I wish there were a lot more of instead of just the lazy, just retreads. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of lazy retreads of everything, <laughs> 2019's Dark Phoenix. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the God, I don't even know what number is this in the in the it's, tenth. It's it the twelfth one. It's the twelfth. Yeah. One. Not in, not including the Deadpool's, right? Which you're not. Right. Doing. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Or in including the yeah, including Into its twelve, not Deadpools. including its ten. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It comes twelfth overall. 10th in the X-Men non Deadpool is its own thing. We got to, yeah. I'm going to do that a separate point because it's, it exists in its own universe. Uh, right. Deadpool will, would have that no other way. Uh, it's also <laughs> the, uh, notably the first X-Men film with no you Jackman as Wolverine. This one, yep, which yep. I think, uh, I, I think they maybe underestimated that he was like the lucky charm. Uh, yeah. with this one to a degree. And maybe we'll get into that. Absolutely. Uh, but but first, what was your going into you know the X Men franchise as a whole? What was what is your history with these characters? Did you were you a fan of the animated series? Did you you know grow up with the comics? What what, what was your familiarity with the X Men before they started uh, appearing on the big screen? You know, wow, that's that's a lot. Like X Men were a lot more prevalent than I I remember because <clears throat> you know they've been and I I think we mentioned on the Dark Knight episode is that. You know, Batman and Spider-Man and Superman, those are the three comic book characters that I really was familiar with. And I would read comics from them. Not like, you know, go to the comic book store and every week buy them. I would only read them like off and on. Like I wasn't diehard comic person, but I was aware of them. I like being aware of things, even though I'm not diehard into a lot of things. So at least I can carry on conversations with people. Yeah. But other than that, I mean, the X-Men were, I knew who they were. Like uh, I remember my... uh, girlfriend in high school like she she was reading x-men comics speaking of which she i remember specifically her reading a comic that was about the the x-men preparing for gene and scott's wedding 
And so I, I yeah. remember that specifically. I remember the cartoon with the theme. And what I remember at the cartoon is I could never, I know a lot of people love it, but I could never get into it because it just felt like it was four or five episodes crammed into one 22 minute episode. There's so much happening and, and going so fast that I couldn't really get a beat on it. Not like, uh, you know, when Batman the animated series came out, that was a more streamlined and easy on the uh, psyche kind of show. I don't know if that makes any sense. So the, yeah. you know, the X-Men series, and again, I'm only familiar with that one. I know there was an X-Men evolution and X, the Wolverine in the X-Men or something like there. So there's been different series. I just wasn't familiar with those. And I think the only character when X-Men came out in 2000, the only character I was really familiar with was Wolverine. Because again, he's, there's a reason that Hugh Jackman like ran with the series because that character, first of all, is the one that everybody seems to gravitate to for, or most people anyway. And then having Hugh Jackman in that part, I think Hugh Jackman became the, just an aside, I think he was the best and the worst thing to happen to the series because we want to focus so much on that that we neglect everybody else. But I was only familiar with that character. And so I remember specifically the advertising because for the 2000 X-Men, because after Batman and Robin, which pretty much killed comic book movies and nobody wanted to touch them again, when they slowly started rolling out X-Men, I remember the, the previews. I love them because they hinted at Wolverine. They give you hints at this character. And so that was enticing. And, uh, you know, I guess the point is to have Xavier and uh, Eric as being the leads, but you know, it's Wolverine. And so that's what they give. Anyway. So that is when, I don't know if I can explain it. Like, even though, it's not, you know, comic accurate. I think it, the, that movie, it accomplished its mission in that it got me interested in that world and those characters, not in a way where, you know, other nineties comic book movies. So I know that the Batman's, uh, came out. I think that was really it. Like as far as comic, pretty much, but even especially those, maybe the Rocketeer, the shadow, like other, kind of pulp stuff but those batman movies were not comic accurate at all in the slightest and i think that's what 90s comic books were like like nobody cared nobody put that much interest in him and so seeing this x-men at least have the spirit like brian singer and his cast and uh, everybody they got the spirit of the comics i think reading some afterwards so that was a great i think it did a good job introducing me to that world even though that movie's not fantastic which we'll talk about why maybe the same way that iron man like i wasn't familiar with iron man i think that movie did a great job of getting me interested in that world and that character so that's where i wouldn't say my obsession but that's where my x-men interest kind of started also periodically as i've been you know releasing these episodes and talking about the this franchise on uh, online i think you and i every once in a while will we'll just kind of take a moment and reflect back at how much more interesting in a lot of ways these movies are yeah. than a lot of the superhero stuff now, because putting it in context, this came out the same year as Avengers Endgame. Yeah. And the original X-Men, as you said, it was in 2000, but in that, in that dark place where we were between <laughs> Batman and Robin and Batman begins. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, when we were getting the likes of, Let's see. Blade is in 98. You had like Steel from with yeah. starring Shaquille O'Neal in like that 97, I think. Spawn was that same year. And then Some of like, these, they weren't even trying. Like you're, you're mentioning these. I'm like, they didn't even try to make a good movie. Uh, but those, you know what I mean? That's where comic book movies were. Post-Batman yeah. and Robin, pre-Batman begins. <laughs> uh, and then after this, we get, you know, Spider-Man. And then you get that right. sort of mini wave of initial Marvel movies. Uh, Daredevil, Elektra, Fantastic Four. 
Mm-hmm. Catwoman is in there. Yeah, and still then, some bad ones. <laughs> yeah, still some bad ones. It, it's yeah, I think it really took Batman Begins to sign of solidifying how to approach these characters on screen. But I think the original X Men was the beginning. It it was for this current wave, sort of the the and you know this has come up in previous conversations as well. Sort of the Superman the movie of this of the last twenty years of, of superhero movies in a lot of ways, as far as focusing more on character. Yeah. And uh, capturing the spirit of that world than necessarily transcribing everything, you know, letter perfect. Well, the X-Men have always been very rich and uh, subtextual and a lot of yeah. other things going like obviously the racism or the, you know, kind of oppression and things like that. And so they're more than, you know, Batman, Superman flying around, Spider-Man doing stuff, which is kind of I don't want to I don't want to like trivialize those but they're more like surface level pleasures like x-men yeah. is more to the core of things that are affecting us like in our lives and so they've, they've always been rich i just it's you're mentioning all these movies and what's fascinating it's fascinating watching the, these comic book movies evolve and kind of mm-hmm. feed off each other because like you said i think superman was the first one and deservedly so it was the first one to really capture the imagination of audiences and it, again it's weird that there weren't more superman and batman and wonder woman why weren't there more of those movies it just they just kept making superman stuff right they just latched on one thing yeah and then that that franchise went into the toilet and then batman that's super girl that's that's Supergirl. as far as they got yeah 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 swamp thing i think was, so they're you know occasional movies but nothing like that hit as big as superman and then batman came out that was the next evolution and then all they did is they made batman movies for the next like (laughs) seven years right and then you know blade kind of and you and brian talked about it in your x-men episode it's like yeah blade kind of brought them back but it's like it's an r-rated kind of separate right it doesn't really i don't know it's it's weird how it doesn't kind of meld in with the rest of the comic book boom yeah but then I think what's really important with X-Men 2000 that a lot of people, yeah, it's easy to pick on it because it, it's kind of, I guess the word is dated or it's kind of like creaky as far, you know, compared to comic book movies now, but uh, it's hard to look back and realize that this is the movie. X-Men 2000 was the movie to really recapture that, like you said, and have these character driven things where even if it's not completely comic book accurate, the spirit is still there and the richness of the story is still there. And yeah, I, We'll mention this a couple times. I'm not huge in the comic book accuracy. I don't care that they're not in their colorful comic book costumes. I just mm-hmm. think that they weren't ready to do that yet because yeah. Batman and Robin had soured everybody on that. So they wanted to be successful, right? But that movie really did start something. And then that gave, opened the door for Spider-Man in 2002. And then that opened the door for X2. And then that opened the door for Batman Begins. And then Batman Begins literally opened the door and inspired Iron Man, like the story. And so, and then they just kept building and building and building and so it's it's fascinating watching all these comic book properties build on each other again an evolution to get us where we are today and it is kind of sad to see x-men dark phoenix kind of bring it back you know back, the, the movie that kind of started the new comic book boom is the one that kind of put a, a kink in the comic book movie right. so it's strange coming full circle like that yeah, absolutely. It's especially like I said, coming the same year as Avengers Endgame, like oh, Marvel Studios' it, yeah. biggest triumph, and the X Men sort of like, you know, <laughs> last yeah. gasp of breath before. Right. Uh, well, I guess technically that would be the New Mutants, um, <laughs> but it's like the kind of a one-two punch of like, oh, yeah. oh okay, we're done with these characters now. Right, I think. Right. Well, I, I just, think with Endgame, yeah. the problem is that. And we'll talk about it some more. I think we've been so attuned to connected universes that, again, yeah. X-Men seems quaint. 
And yeah, compared to Endgame coming out after that, like this movie is nothing. It doesn't compare. It's more of a kind of a bottle, kind of emotional human story on a small scale, other than the huge cosmic. And people didn't want that. They wanted the big Endgame stuff, right? So yeah, yeah it got, and it, we'll talk about it too. Like the, the production of this movie was hurt because of the MCU. And yeah, the Disney merger happened. And then Brian Singer, his sexual abuse allegations came out. Just a bunch of things just really... <laughs> <laughs> did not work in this movie's favor. No, absolutely. And, and it's it's one of the things that most people point out about this movie and how wrongheaded it, it was on paper is that you have the same guy writing this movie and directing it who yeah. wrote The Last Stand, but also, but people forget, people want to always like to point fingers at like, Oh, you have Simon Kinberg write and direct this movie who co-wrote The Last Stand. You have him do the same storyline again and kind of, in the eyes of most fans, messing it up twice. Yeah. But I think they forget he was also involved either as a producer or a writer on First Class, Days of Future Past, Logan, mm -hmm. uh, in addition to you know Apocalypse and New Mutants. Right. But what is your take on, on Kinberg coming into this with his history of, of these characters? Do you think that was... A, a good decision one to bring him on in this role in this story again or and two to even should they have even tried the storyline a second time after what happened well i'm not super familiar with the i just recently started reading like the storyline but i'm not super familiar, familiar with the dark phoenix saga i know that it means a lot to a lot of people but i i just approach like <laughs> I think The Last Stand does a worse job, I think, because it, it sidelines that whole thing. And it just it seems mm -hmm. like it's shoehorned in. It doesn't really play into the themes of the story like at all. It's so strange. And so, I mean, they it it's honorable that they want to take another crack at it because it's so famous. And like in the comics, it's funny because even after the saga ended, they kept bringing the Phoenix back and they kept bringing Jean Grey back because that was the popular thing, which is what they always do in comics. Right. So them bringing it back again is very, again, comic book accurate. Like we see that happen in comic books a lot. I just think that, and again, this movie is hard. You're, you're not going to find me like yelling to the skies about how great this movie is. Like, I know that there are other movies, like maybe Spider-Man 3, I'll defend to the high heavens. Dark Knight Rises, I will absolutely defend to the high heavens, even though people don't like that one. This one, you're not going to find me doing that. This this one is more of, it, it's one of those movies, kind of like, speaking of Brian Singer, it's kind of like Bohemian Rhapsody, which when I saw in the theater was okay. Like, I, I like listening to the Queen music. But then everybody yeah. attacking it, like, with full hearts, and just like, it, it was like a jilted girlfriend. I was like, guys, the movie's not that bad. Why are we focusing on it that much? And so it's it's the same thing as this. I'm like, it's not terrible. Dark Phoenix isn't terrible. I just don't understand why there's so much hate for it. It's like it just kind of it's a brush off your shoulder kind of movie, as opposed to something that your your you know your X Men underoos kind of get tied up, like all tight and bunched up, right? It's not that kind right. of movie. So it's like I said, it's tough. It's not an Endgame, and I think you have to get that in your head that X Men is different from the MCU. And yeah, it's unfortunate this came out. That I just think that Kinberg. Because I know, like he, I like his screenplay for Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I think Sherlock Holmes is a good screenplay. <laughs> Unfortunately, he, I think he co-wrote Fan Four Stick, so he's like his yep. ups and downs. But listening to him talk about how he wanted to make this more of a down-to-earth kind of personal story, I think he's right for that. I think that there are some in his writing, especially there are some real stinkers of dialogue, like the maybe you should rename them X Women. You oh, know, God. Or there's a part later where. 
uh, you know, Scott says, if you touch her, I'll effing kill you. It's like, oh, what, you know, some, some of his lines are real clunkers, but I think if you're going to make this a personal non-cosmic story, like Avengers Endgame is, I think he's, you want to get maybe like a, somebody who's familiar with it that can tap into the emotions of the characters and stuff like that. So I think he was a good fit for it, whether or not like he, at the it was rewarding or, or the movie was worth it. That's another story, but I don't have a problem. I never had a problem with him taking over for the series, especially after, you know, singer came back for days of future past. And then with apocalypse, it kind of really regressed after future past was so great. Right. And so it was like, well, let's give it to, let's do something different. And then obviously after Logan, it's like, well, let's get a different flavor. So I do think that Kinberg is, he was right for the story at the time. I think. How much of this movie's reception do you think is, Caused by the fact that it came after Logan. Because I feel like Logan, like as far as release, chronologically, these movies don't really mesh together anyway. And Mm. that's in that regard, I think the X-Men franchise kind of had the best of both worlds where they're like, it's all connected. It's all a timeline, kind of, Uh, unless we don't want it to. And then (laughs) just let it be, get off our backs. We're trying to tell the story. And I think in that way, they were able to sort of make things connected without feeling you know, sort of hindered in the way that the MCU maybe does. Well, oh, I guess we have to pay off this thing from 10 years yeah, ago. Yeah. People keep asking us about it or whatever. But I think Logan came out, and as we mentioned, you Jackman, the best and worst thing to happen to this franchise <laughs> it just kind of gets fixated on him. Spoilers for Logan, having that character be killed off at the end and having that have such a sense of finality, and then this movie coming out, I feel yeah. like maybe people felt like, but we've we moved past this already. We've done this storyline We've mm-hmm. closed off this franchise in a an emotionally satisfying way. What more is there to do? Like if they had reversed the releases of those movies and this had come out in like say 2017 or 18 and Logan came after, would this have been uh, just like on principle better received? Well, again, this movie is a proverbial punching bag. Like I don't think it yeah. had a chance. Uh, you know, I'm, I might be, when we do maybe the, the rankings of the X-Men movies later, when you right. ask for that later, Mike, take on Logan might be controversial or my placing of it. But the one thing that's undeniable about Logan, the one thing that makes it a a great movie and not just an X-Men superhero movie is that it had the personality of a Western, but most of all, it had a personality. It had something to say that wasn't just about the fan service stuff. So it felt Logan feels so much different. It feels like the same way the dark Knight feels different for comic book movies. It just feels like it's a, it's an evolution of what, you know, the, the kitty stuff can do, you know, other than the R rating, you know, I think Logan, the story that it tells is a very adult mature story. And I think this one, again, coming out after Endgame, it just didn't have a chance being the second story about, you know, the Phoenix saga and stuff like that. And with other people who aren't familiar with that storyline from the comics, it's like this again, you know, that kind of, I do agree that that, that hurt it. I think Kinberg in his, um, when he was doing press for it, said that he wanted to do something akin to Logan that had more of a personality and dove deeper into the themes and characters. And again, even though I thought Kinberg was a good choice, I don't know if he's, um, I think he has the chops more than Brett Radner had the chops of delving into <laughs> the characters, right? Yeah. But it, he still wasn't, you know, Mangold's a, a completely different writer and director than Kinberg is. You know what I mean? Like this is Kinberg's directorial yeah. debut. And so Mangold being a master film, uh, maybe not a master filmmaker, but a master storyteller, he's got a stronger handle on, yeah. on those things. And so that's, yeah, it, they're, 
there are so many things that affected this movie's chances at the box office or affected people's chances. Again, if you're going to walk out of Endgame on a high and then sit down and watch Dark Phoenix, you're it's kind of like that. What is that? That that uh, shot of Timon in The Lion King, you know, when he realizes that, oh, the, the two lions are actually friends and he's, he's defeated. It's that kind of reaction <laughs> that you get. It's like, oh, this is a letdown coming up after yeah. the highs of Logan. But I, I like like you said, I still think there's more interesting things in here and interesting topics to chat about than there are in the MCU. I just think, I think you mentioned it in your last stand episode with Jeremiah. It's like with the MCU, you know what you're going to get each time out. And every now and then, unless you get a, a Coogler or a gun, it's just going to be the same generic, you know, jokey joke, you know, same kind of story. Right. And so yeah. the, even though this one's repeating the same thing, I think there are still more interesting facets to it than most not most, but a lot of the comic book movies are out today that, that don't even try to delve deep and just do explosions that kind of distract us from that stuff. I agree with you in that this is obviously more focused on the Dark Phoenix saga than The yeah. Last Stand, which sort of uses that as kind of a setup and a payoff for the right, right. for the Cure storyline, and that's about it. I, I I think that that movie... I don't, I won't, I don't defend last stand, but a lot I, of sighing are going to be doing. In this yeah. Episode. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I, I don't defend last stand, but there are, there are sequences, there are elements of it that I do sort of admire to regard uh, in some ways in this movie. I think this smart decision was letting Jean's story be the focal point of the movie. I think that was, that was a good idea. I, the problem that the problem that I run into with this is one that means you're hanging your entire film on Sophie Turner's performance as right. Jean Grey, which I think is less less successful uh, and, and overall probably less successful than Famke Janssen's performance as that character uh, in her in her three appearances in that in that role. And also, you're bringing in all this unsubstantiated cosmic stuff, which every time and this is only the, honestly this is the only one other than new mutants of this franchise that I have only seen the once. And <laughs> now I'm rewatching it for this one, for this podcast. It, it both times I, it, it frustrated me how little they give Jessica Chastain to do. And we will oh, get yeah. into that oh, in a yeah. bit, but like the, the Sophie Turner's performance is hurdle. Number one. I don't yeah. like they, they established that oh, she's super powerful. She doesn't know how to handle it, whatever. Okay. get it. And I don't feel like she necessarily can carry this movie. And this is a movie where the way it's positioned is she's the lead. And I don't yeah. feel like she's really capable of doing that, at least not in this movie. And the second thing is the cosmic stuff is just completely bungled. And I lose interest whenever the, I don't even remember how they, the species is called. Do they even say yeah, they, in a subtitle, in the movie? they say, they say Dabari. It's just one because, time. Because <laughs> they were supposed to be, I think, scrolls at yes. one point. And then and I think Captain they were like, Marvel oh, crap. That. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Captain Marvel heard that. And uh, I don't know if there were rights issues over scrolls. That might have been a gray area that they and the Marvel Studios and Fox both kind of had uh, a little bit of ownership on. So I don't I the Dabari <laughs> thing is is very, very weak. Where oh, do yeah. you land, first of all, on Sophie Turner's performance? Since I love the idea of shifting the focus finally away from Wolverine and <laughs> Charles and Xavier and Eric and Raven, you know, kind of letting some, uh, another character be the focus. You have this ensemble and yet mm -hmm. it's always <laughs> good to, to, uh, you know, to quote Fassbender in this movie, 
he's Charles apologizing for something. He's always yeah, a speech yeah. and nobody cares. Nobody cares. Which is, yeah. So mad. Which is a great line. He's like, yeah, <laughs> whatever, man. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what do you, how, where do you land on Sophie Turner's performance in this movie? Is she able to carry this thing? Because it asks a lot of her kind of. Well, I'm going to, let, let me get there. Just as an aside, I think the thing yeah. that makes Days of Future Past such a strong uh, entry in the franchise is, yeah, Wolverine's there. Yeah, it's an ensemble. But there's literally a part in Days of Future Past where Wolverine is whisked away and he's taken out of the situation. And it makes you remember that this is a story between Xavier and Raven and Eric, that's the yep. focus of this new friend, this new series, right? And I think that's such a brilliant move. It really helps center that. 100%. And I don't back on Sophie Turner. I don't want to trash her too much because I think she's there. There are worse people, right? But I, first of all, I don't know if Famke Jansen is the strongest performer either. Like if, if she was required to do this, I don't know if she would have been able to pull it off. You know what I mean? I don't want to trash her mm-hmm. either. I just don't. She was kind of the weak link. Like Jean wasn't written the greatest in those initial yeah, movies. Agreed. And Famke didn't bring the energy to it that kind of, you know, you have Rutger Hauer in Batman Begins, who's an under underwritten character. But Rutger Hauer in there brings so much gravitas and history to that part of Earl that it overcomes a lot of those those distractions or those those negatives, right? And Sophie Turner, you're right. It's like she's she's great when she has little moments there's a part where she wakes up after the party after she's hurt everyone and she sees the scar on scott's face and she's like did, mm-hmm. did i do that i'm like she's really good and those quite i thought oh that yeah. broke my heart right and i like the part where she's in the alleyway and she's just freaking out because she doesn't understand why she just killed one of her best friends i think she's great in the quieter moments i think that she has a great look so the end when she's not required to say much but she's just decimating all the dabari people I, I think she looks fantastic and they do a good job through there but you're right it's like she's not the strongest actress to to pin this on and i do like that they give xavier they give mcavoy a good arc they give fassbender a good arc in here they give holt a good arc in here so that she's i don't think she's the only one like she's not the only one that's i think a weaker performance in this movie actually comes from jennifer lawrence who i think she's just done like she (laughs) she's i was I ha- literally have in my notes, Jennifer Lawrence, is she dialed in? <laughs> <laughs> and I wrote down when she, spoilers, obviously, when she gets killed, I'm like, oh, there go her contract just expired. Like, it, right. she doesn't need to be in this anymore, right? And it's just, so, I don't know, Turner's fine, but you're right, it's not, I have in my notes that why are there parts in this movie where I'm not as invested as I need to be? Like, it's yeah. just kind of rolling off my back, and it's not really having that impact, even though, like I said, Turner does have moments where she breaks my heart, and it does work uh and i do like the idea that it's about her self-actualization so that she becomes her own self not from what anybody's telling her to be mm-hmm. i think she pulls that off and that's that's a neat thing they attacked this movie i think kinberg wanted to make this a story about mental illness and so they they delved into that the effects on the other x-men of this happening which again happens in the, the phoenix uh, saga storyline is everybody's trying to deal with what's happening to our friend right it's kind of like what addiction does and how people react to addiction and, and what's happened to this this person that they once trusted and loved so much we'll still do but they're having a hard time with that anyway but so yeah i don't know if she's the strongest and to your point the thing that's hard to, to grasp is again me not being familiar with the uh, dark phoenix saga i think that this it only tackles the first half of the comics. Like literally in the comics, there's a part where she becomes Phoenix and she flies off into space. And then this whole other story starts and dark Phoenix ends there. 
where she flies up into space. That's where the student. Yeah. So it only is half of that story. I don't know if they were planning on doing a part two of this or if they're splitting it or whatever. And just because of the Disney merger, Disney Fox merger, they just had to just kind of tie it in a, in a messy little bow. But, you know, like I said, it works for what it's what it's trying to. I don't know what I'm trying to say here, Rob. Like it works for what <laughs> it's trying. It, it's little bottle thing. It's trying. I think it, it works more than it doesn't for that. But if you're going in expecting the whole saga, you're not going to get that. You're, none of that is in here. And I think with the cosmic stuff, because this X-Men series is so down to earth, I think if you're going to introduce words like interstellar transporter or star jammers or McCran crystals or Arnon Halar or synaptic scramble device, you know, you're going to introduce all these other fancy words. It's not, it's not going to work. Like you're going to have people like, what is this series doing? All of a sudden it's trying to be like comic booky when that's, yeah. you know, literally there's a part where they're, you always go out in these suits and no, you prefer yellow spandex. I mean, that's what defines the series. <laughs> in the, in the, in the movie that had just come out two years earlier, Logan's flipping through X-Men comics and be like, Oh, this is bullshit. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. maybe a quarter of this happened, but not like this. You know, like, right, and right. then, and then you get to this movie and it's the most comic booky. They're in space. Every, the X-Men, you know, yeah. uh, the president has like a, a hard line to Xavier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gene gets hit with purple orange flames and all yeah. of a sudden is super powered. And, right, you know, right. they try and they have this like really ham handed like exposition scene with Chastain being like, oh, the Phoenix Force destroyed our <sighs> planet and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, oh, snore. Like <laughs> I, it, none of that works for me. Yeah. What I did connect to more so this time is the like you were saying the character based stuff the this movie using Jean and her I guess newfound abilities to as an allegory for not even mental illness per se but also just people who are differently abled where yeah, yeah. the those scenes with McAvoy sitting there with young Jean and like you know being like you are not broken like mm-hmm. you know I can take you and I can I can you know help you know help you learn to control your abilities and all of that, like all of that stuff. That, and speaking of, while we're on the topic, McAvoy, Fastbender, those two are such touchstones in these movies. Whenever the crazy, goofy shit is happening, you go back <laughs> to either of them and you're like, yeah, I'm back. I'm back emotionally dialed yeah. in because they're so good Yeah, throughout, throughout these four mil- movies that they're in. Uh, to the point that this movie has you know, the gene thing, the, the Phoenix story is the main thrust, but then you still have, like you mentioned earlier, those, those little arcs for each of those characters, particularly I thought the idea that it introduces and then kind of forgets about, about Charles kind of feeding the, the whole, uh, the X-Men's reputation and acceptance by, by the public sort of feeding his ego that he maybe Mm -hmm. lost focus a bit on all of that. I thought that was a really interesting idea and I would have liked to have seen it explored a little bit more thoroughly in this movie. Well, again, too, you're, you're trying to, I don't know where this comparison came from, but when they were adapting Harry Potter and the order of the Phoenix, which is very Mm -hmm. sprawling novel, like you have Hermione that has this whole subplot. And when the director came in uh, or when they they came back in and decided to make this, they decided let's focus on Harry. And so they kicked out a lot of, they streamlined a lot of the other stuff. So in a way, like when you do that, a lot of other characters are going to get the short shrift. I know that uh, who plays, uh, who plays storm, in, in this movie. Alexandra ship. Yeah. She complained that her role was cut back. Um, I agree yeah. that sometimes, um, 
Charles's story kind of gets lost because you're trying to focus on this. But what I thought was was good, I have a note, is when McAvoy's answer, he sees that, oh, <laughs> they're going to do X-Men internment camps, right? It's like, oh, no, we're coming back to this. And he gets on the phone and it's like, well, obviously, Charles, your hubris is what caused this. Like, if it wasn't for you tapping down and, and doing what everybody else is doing and telling Jean to control her powers and not deal with them and just, just yeah. kind of hold them off, right? That's not healthy. And so I think that every now and then it kind of seeps back in. You're like, oh, yeah, he's just as much or not just as much, he is at fault for this. Like he, he never dealt with it correctly. Like when Hank calls him out, which is a great scene between Holt and McAvoy and Holt's, I think his anger, it kind of surprises us as much as it surprises Charles. Yeah. Because like, it's, it's just so after we see Raven die and and all the stuff and it's like, you know, it's so emotionally fraught that I think that's, that's great. And I like that that ties in. I like that they brought back Fassbender and I, you know, his the Magneto character, he has the same arc in this that he has in Apocalypse or Days of Future the last Past. Three like, movies. Yeah, it's the same, much. right? And what I do, I like approaching this movie. It's it's watching it last night. I like watching it as I haven't you know, getting buried under all the comic book stuff and then taking a break from X-Men and coming back and watching this is not something that's connected to other movies, not something that's like super high in the comic book imagery and all of that. I, I liked approaching it as just like a separate entity than anything else we'd seen. And I think it works as far as that goes, but it's hard because like, like Eric says, like there's always a speech, like nobody cares. Like it's, it's the same thing over and over again. But I do like when Jean confronts him, she's like, you've killed people. And he, she brings it up and it obviously hurts him. It's like, yeah. yeah, you know, when people I love get hurt, I lash out. And that's what he does. And he has to learn the same lesson again. So I, it's hard if you're able to separate yourself from the other movies, I think. And that's this movie's problem is it just repeats so many things. Right. But as a bottle movie, I think it works. The, the character stuff works as you know, from that point. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? Yeah. 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 I think so too. Yeah. It's funny too, because this is a second attempt at this story and it's diff- different in a lot of ways. And yet it's still kind of all uh, Charles's fault because in the, <laughs> yeah. in the last stand, it's the similar kind of thing where he created a mental block in Jean and was containing her power. Uh, and then she lashes out. It's, there's that line in that movie in the last stand where Logan is like looking at him, kind of judging him like, Hey, maybe you shouldn't have done that to her. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes when you cage the beast, the beast gets angry or yeah, whatever yeah. he says. Yeah. Uh, and so you see kind of a very similar thing here. We're back in the gray house. Like we are in that movie. It's Charles's fault. There's a lot of like kind of similar through lines, which I think yeah. are, are interesting. And, and those are also at the aspects of the last stand that I think work better in that movie. <laughs> this the sequence with uh, the Charles and Phoenix in that in that movie in the gray house that sort of like psychic sort of confrontation I think that scene is probably the standout sequence yeah. from that movie in a lot Visually of ways interesting right yeah yeah and so it's funny here we're back we're sort of back in, in some ways in the same place under somewhat different circumstances. Well, it's strange that they latched onto that because that I don't think that's a part of the comics. I, I don't think so either. Yeah, it's she has this in her, and then they again in the the story is they're in space. She gets she has the telekinetic shield like it happens in the movie. She gets attacked by this force. That she's fine. They bring her back. I think they crash into a, like a, a lake or something, and she comes out of the water like she came out in the last stand. Things like that. Mm-hmm. But then they bring her back to the mansion like they do in the last stand. She's okay. And then the comics go on for a lot of episodes, and gra- and every now and then you get hints at this phoenix power and stuff like that. But right. it's never. Char- it's just she 
And there's a part where she decides because they are they're they go on this like they're teleported somewhere and they fight against the shoot what are they called the the let's see the I forget the the Dabari right or or yeah. the who who is it that sorry I'm kind of blanking on those characters the, the Shiar. Yeah, I was going to say, Empire, I think it was. Right? There yeah. we go. Sorry. Blanked on. See, these. there's just so many names. But, exactly. you know, it's the Shi'ar. They, they, she fights against them. She comes back to Earth, and she's the one that goes, I'm going to control these things. I'm going to build these walls, right? And so, I, you know, I don't know. It's like, why Why are they? I guess it's interesting, but it's just funny that they rehash the Charles thing. I, I'm, I'm just not sure if they wanted maybe McAvoy to take a crack at it because – Stuart doesn't really, I mean, he's, he becomes kind of sinister in the last stand for a little bit and then he's killed before anything can be done with it, which again, it's a great scene, but it's like, well, it doesn't lead anywhere because for the rest of the movie, Jean in that movie, she just stands there. She doesn't do anything. It's like, well, (laughs) she stands next to Magneto until the end of the movie where it's like, oh, I'm mad. I need to start like, oh, here's the other movie. (laughs) So again, I like that they focus the story completely on the Jean story and how it affects everybody else. So I think in that regard, it works better than the last end. I just think it's weird that you're doing the same exact story with a lot of the same exact story points uh, just for different, different disappointing results. It feels like the same writer doing a, a different draft of the same st- script in a yeah. lot of ways. And I think, yeah, that definitely, like you were saying, that hurt, hurts it. Also, it's confusing to me in these movies specifically, because in the other ones, there's no cosmic stuff. Is the Phoenix Force what makes her powerful, or is it already in her? Because in the previous movie, I know this is a franchise that famously Ugh. contradicts itself constantly, <laughs> but in the previous movie, she taps into whatever power she has, and that's what kind of blasts Apocalypse away. <laughs> and it looks like a phoenix. So yeah. is it a force that she gets in her? Is it in her already? <laughs> or Simon Kinberg's not sure? Because I'm I, pretty sure he also wrote that movie. I don't think they know what the hell they're doing. <laughs> it's, you know, I get the Marvel, the MCU, what they're in like chapter 45 or something like yeah. that. And so they're all the same thing. I relish like having different you know, ideas and different personalities. I know first class doesn't match up at all with the uh, storyline that was established before, but I also think that it's Matthew Vaughn saying, I don't give a shit about continuity. I want to tell my own story and my own, my own desires. With that one, what's interesting is that first class wasn't supposed to be a prequel. First class was supposed to be kind of a straight up reboot. Yeah. And then they were like, Ooh, this is successful. Wait, what is more? What is Marvel studios doing? Okay. No, this is a prequel now. Uh, we're going to mash the cast together because, I mean, look, we're also uh, – First Class came out in 2011. This came out in 2019. There's eight years difference. These characters are supposed to be 30 years older <laughs> yeah. than they are. I'm pretty sure McAvoy and uh, Fassbender <laughs> and all of them, they don't look like they're like 60. This is set in 1992. <laughs> this is supposed to be – if we're going to – let's assume that the original film is set in 2000. It says in the near future – yeah, yeah. You're telling me that McAvoy is going to in eight years turn into Patrick Stewart? I know it's like the Star Wars thing all over again. Yeah, well, like, maybe Wait it's... a minute. McGregor's turning into Alec Guinness like yeah. five years or whatever? I don't know. It doesn't make sense. Maybe it's the thing from Revenge of the Sith where the force power turns like Palpatine into an old man. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that happens off screen. I have no idea. Maybe. But like, like I said, even though I like the personality, I think showing her as a phoenix, like again, they don't know. Yeah. They're just going movie to movie. Like they don't exactly. have to out. Like in the comics, the phoenix is this immortal extraterrestrial 
terrestrial entity that just feeds off power. And I think that's what it turns out to be in this. And it just taps into Jean because they recognize something in her that they can manipulate. I know in the comics, <laughs> and it's funny again, because what they did is even though it's, it, you know, Jean comes out of that water, what they did is the Phoenix Force contained Jean in a cocoon. Yeah. <laughs> and then five years later, again, this is all retcon stuff, but five years later, like Monica Rambeau as Captain Marvel, like finds her at the bottom of Jamaica Bay. It's like, oh, like, so the whole time she wasn't Jean Grey, the whole time she was the Phoenix Force that just adopted the personality of Jean Grey. So I, I just comics are weird. These movies. Are, so when people have problems with the continuity, I'm like, yeah, but the comics don't really make a lot of sense yeah. either, guy. You know what I mean? It's like they're all over the place. But yeah, I mean, I like the personality, but having the end of Apocalypse to this is like, that's a little too far of a stretch. I don't know what you're trying to, because I don't think they tap into the idea that it's inside her at all. Yeah. Uh, I just think that it kind of takes over her. So I don't know. It's yeah. Just, <laughs> it's almost like, I think people were complaining about the last stand because of the lack of cosmic elements. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like the cosmic elements that are added here actually make this movie substantially worse. Yeah. I think if you if you imagine this exact same movie, yeah. no Jessica Chastain, no Dabari, no Vuk, whatever uh, whatever <laughs> yeah. her name is supposed to be, and uh, it, it's the exact same rest of the story, and you give those characters and that arc more room to breathe, I think this is instantly a much better film. Yeah. It's just weighed down. But like, like that's my point is, if you're going to spend all this time giving us this convoluted backstory about the Phoenix force, know what you're like, have it like fit together somewhat with what we already know and what we've already seen. Don't just make it up <laughs> on the spot. If it's going to like, if it's going to, you know, hold this whole movie back, I guess yeah. uh, it's frustrating. <laughs> well, here's, here's the thing is that I know that cause again, guardians of the galaxy, like people weren't, or even Thor, like going back even further, like they didn't know if people were going to be ready for that. And I think it did work because of the strength of the writing and the acting and all that and the direction and, and, all, and you know, all that stuff. I think that the MCU would be much better at handling the comic cosmic stuff and making it work. Uh, again, the reason that the, the scrolls weren't the original ending of the movie had, Gene flying up into space and decimating spaceships. This is just what happens at the end of Captain Marvel with the scroll, with the Kree, and the scrolls are in it, right? But it's like, yeah. I know the MCU could do a better job at the story, but as of this point, I don't want to see the Phoenix Saga done ever again. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's I like, you tried twice, and yeah, it doesn't really work 100% in Dark Phoenix, but when the movie ends, and it ends with, again, Charles and Eric playing chess at a cafe that's literally called old friends in English, right? It's like, that's a nice way to end it. Like, that's not <laughs> like, I don't need any more from this story. Like there's nothing else yeah. that can be gleaned from it. I'm never going to complain when a movie, uh, an X-Men movie has a reference to, or ends with a Charles and Eric chess match or yeah. call back, like even apocalypse, which, uh, people will have heard by now is probably the oft hated X-Men movie that I sort of have a soft spot for even that movie. <laughs> ends with sort of a callback to a, yeah. a Charles and Eric conversation. Uh, so yeah, I'm never going to turn that. Like those, those two characters are, are, are never, I, I mean, I'm, they're never not, not great and they're never not uh, compelling. And I they, think that's a testament to the writing and also the performances. I mean, yeah. with those actors. They're the heart. Uh, again, like you, you talked about it with Brian, like Xavier and Eric are the heart of yeah. this universe, even though Wolverine kind of takes it over. And then, you 
you know, there's a part where in Days of Future Past, when Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen or their characters are talking, and, and Eric says, all those years fighting each other, where we could have been friends, and they shake I hands, know. and it's like, you guys, and you see Stewart and McKellen in real life, and they're such good friends, it's like, you guys yeah. have such good chemistry that I just want to see you just play chess. Just have two hours of you playing chess <laughs> and chatting. And it's the same thing with Fastbender and McAvoy. They've got such good chemistry, and you can tell yeah. they like just being in each other's orbit. And so you, you can really feel that you feel that from them. So, yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> it does end in a way that's like, all right, like th- that's at least you're for the 17th time <laughs> you're bringing it back to where the heart of this franchise is. Yeah. Yeah. I want to just address the Jennifer Lawrence of it all. <laughs> so obviously she was all of these actors from the original trilogy or the prequel trilogy, I guess, uh, of this franchise, uh, their contracts were up. They all renegotiated to come back for this. So I'm sure Jennifer Lawrence got a, a nice payday for the 40 minutes uh, that she's <laughs> in this movie. Uh, and not only that, the makeup at this point is is something that people had talked about throughout this franchise. But at this point, it's basically just paint her blue and glue a couple things to her face and she's done. <laughs> yeah. uh, even Hank's makeup, like he barely, he's the beast for like, I don't know, a couple scenes, like at least the third act, maybe part of it. It's, it, it's whatever at this point, they just, they, they're rewriting the rules as they go along. <laughs> I, I did find it kind of interesting that, you know, they, they bring Jennifer Lawrence in for first class. That's before, uh, Silver Linings Playbook, that's before the Oscar win, obviously, yeah. and that's before Hunger Games. And then Apocalypse happens, and she's kind of almost the lead character, certainly the focal character of that movie. Yeah. And Apocalypse, she ends by becoming basically the leader of the X-Men. Yeah. And then here she dies 40 minutes in. And, you know, if you're going to kill off your Oscar winner, you make the rest of the movie about her death. The rest of the film, after she's she is killed off, everything is about Raven. Like, Gene killed yeah. Raven. Who's going to protect Gene? Yeah. Who's going to take her out? Uh, what do you What do you think about how Raven, even in death, posthumously, kind of steals the spotlight a bit from even Gene's storyline that this is supposed to really be tracking? Uh, well, I don't. Again, I'm not super familiar with the comic. I don't know if Mystique has the same heroic arc in the comics that she. I don't has believe here. so. I think they just made her blue catness, basically. And yeah, I mean, it's like Jennifer Lawrence is. I love her. Like, there's you can't not love Jennifer yeah. Lawrence. She's so funny, and you know all the stuff. I think because she became a bigger star, I think it says in her contract just at the top, like less makeup. Like when she's yeah. doing this, and it's fine. It's like I'm really not focused on the makeup as much as her right. performance, right? But. Eh, I don't, again, like, I like, I personally, I like the Rebecca Romain Stamos mystique. I like that she's kind of this, you know, this, this devil that kind of like, you know, twirls in and like does her thing. And she's like, so fun to watch, but she's like, kind of, she's odd. Like, she's kind of like, she's untouchable. Like she's at a, at a distance. I like, I don't like the idea. I've never liked when she, like you said, she becomes the leader of the exit. I'm like, that's not so much comic book accurate as Jennifer Lawrence accurate. Like they want her to be in a leadership (laughs) position. Right. Exactly. And I, I I like it. I'm just going to say, I like it. Like she's obviously, she's not dialed in. Like you said, she's not fully there. She has that terrible ex women line, you know, that kind of thing. And when she dies, what I thought was interesting is not having seen this in a couple of years. And just as a little bit of another tangent, again, the um, cinematographer who worked on this movie, I think his name is uh, Mauro Fiore. He also did the cinematography for no way home, which is interesting. But in that movie, my favorite, when that movie started really to get its claws into me is when, again, spoilers, when Aunt May dies, like it all of a sudden 
the MCU, which doesn't have any stakes and never dramatizes anything that it's, it, it just brings up these things at surface level, never dramatizes them, never deals with them. When she dies in No Way Home, you really feel it. Like there's a loss. Yeah. And that's when it hooked me in. I was like, oh, I'm back. Like I, I, I haven't felt this from an MCU movie in years. Right. But there's a line where she collapses and she says, I've just got to catch my breath. And then when I was watching this last night and you see Mystique get, you know, you know, pinned on those, the, the wood chipper. And she says, I've just got to catch my breath. I was like, what <laughs> did, did no way home steal that from this? Cause it works in this one. I just thought that's yeah. a weird kind of tie in that they had there. But as far as her posthumously, I like that the rest of the movie is, is the fallout from that. It's like, that is the mm-hmm. final straw. Like Magneto's Eric's willing to help her. Like he keeps saying again and again, whose blood is that? Whose blood is, whose that? Blood is yeah. that? Right. And as soon as he finds it, whose blood it is like, Oh, she's dead. Like, because that's the final straw. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, he's just, yeah. ah, he's just going to kill her. Right. But it's, I like the idea that the whole rest of the movie is about the fallout and how everybody's dealing with it. Who's siding with whom it's like, again, it's like a civil war of who's dealing, who's going to support her. Like you said, who's going to try to kill her, all these things. I mean, it's funny that you say that because it literally made me think of Captain America Civil War yeah. where the whole Iron Man and, and uh, the whole Tony and Steve uh, argument is, it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't Bucky. He was brainwashed. And, yeah. I, and Tony Stark is like, I don't care. He killed my mom. Like it's, <laughs> that boy, that's kind of exactly what this is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's the power that she couldn't control. Gene didn't consciously, you know, on, on purpose kill Raven. Uh, yeah. Which I it's, it's the MCU again. Again, the X-Men is the redheaded stepchild now of franchises. Yeah. Like it has to keep sacrificing things because the MCU did it. I think Kinberg's original plan was it was the the Brotherhood and the X-Men. They're kind of on separate sides and it kind of keeps, you know, they have a confrontation where it keeps like whittling down and whittling down until it's finally just Gene versus Scott right? And that would have been, a, that's at least about ideas. It's about whittling down and kind of breaking down barriers and getting through to each other. That's more about ideas than what happens in civil war, where it's just people having the equivalent of a slap fight, like you have with your brother, <laughs> right? And there's no consequences of that. Where he gets it, hurt, but he's walking action at figures, action yeah. figures on a back lot in Atlanta. Basically but again, the, the MCU is yeah. for 12 year olds. I don't mean that as a negative because star Wars yeah. is meant for 12 year olds. Right. But it, it doesn't help that it's written. It feels like it's written by 12 year olds. Like they don't know how to deal with, well, how are we going to solve this, this story right. about brainwashing and dehumanization and, and sexual and child trafficking, like in black widow, how are we going to deal with this stuff? Oh, let's have a dinner scene where everybody argues with each other, about what it all means, how are we going to deal with that? Oh, let's just have them punch each other. It's like, what? That's, that's not how you resolve things. It's like, who's, who's writing this stuff. Right. So at least Kinberg wanting to do that for the, have it be a literal civil war where it's about ideas. That's at least something. You know what I mean? I, but I still like, like I said, I still like that it is about the fallout of that. Like that is the point. Raven's death is that's, what's going to test everybody. It's not, it's not easy anymore. It's not an easy decision. We can't help our friend. She's killed another friend. Who do we side with? And so I like that it does have, because Mystique or Lawrence's Mystique has been such a strong presence that it, it, I think she deserves that as far as the story goes. And I think it still feeds into that. It's still a, like an ensemble. I don't know. I just, I like it, even though it's not a hundred percent as strong as it needs to be. Right. No, no. I think you also bring up an interesting point that Ty Sheridan's Cyclops should be much more integral to the story than he actually is. That's that's an excellent excellent point there. Like I almost would have 
Yeah. Love to have seen him kind of lead, take, take automotive more of a leadership role in this movie as well, well which the movie kind of pays that lip service, but doesn't yeah. really feel like it's the case. Well, I agree. Again, it's not as strong as it needs to be with a couple of notes yeah. that I have. Like I like that when they go up into space at the beginning and you have Kurt, who's nervous, you have, yeah. Shoot, I'm forgetting his name, this the speedster, Quicksilver, whatever. Quicksilver, uh, yeah. yeah, anyway, his real name. So he's nervous, like even like uh, uh, Gene is nervous. But you look at Ty Sheridan Cyclops and he's calm. Like he's the calm guy. Like he's he's not the leader, obviously, because it's got Hank and Raven who are the leaders of this team. But she he puts his hand on Gene's shoulder, right? I like later that, you know, they're they're deciding like Charles finds where Gene is and he's gonna uh, Scott come with me. Aurora, I don't need you to come. Kurt, I don't need you to come. I don't want you to get hurt. And then, and then Scott says, "I need you to come. You're coming with mm-hmm. us. We need you." Yeah, help. that was a great moment. He's usurping his Charles's leadership, and that's it. Kind of hints at that's where Cyclops is going. I like at the end that you know, I, again, it shows him becoming the leader. Like at the end when he's helping. Uh, Charles get through to to Gene or get to the train car at the end. He's he's the leader. Like he's you see that kind of planted, which is strange because I know that Marsden is a great um, actor. He's a, he's a great fun presence, but the way that Cyclops is written in those first few movies, he's again he's a nothing when he should be the charismatic lead. Yeah. And again, that comes back to Hugh Jackman kind of, well, we can't do that because we need to focus on Hugh Jackman, right? I just think it's yeah. really funny that the Cyclops in this movie that everybody hates is a stronger Cyclops as a leader, even though, like you said, it's not fully there. He's yeah. a stronger leader in this, a stronger presence than he's been in this series at all. So I, I like no, that at least they're planting that. Yeah, I no, I agree. It just feel, I, it feels like in the third act, he gets kind of lost a it's little It's slight, yeah. Yeah, it's slight. I, I, I do think that's a good point to sort of, uh, to sort of emphasize, though. I really do generally like the younger uh cast members who are holdovers from apocalypse like evan peters who plays quicksilver and yeah. uh alexander ship ty sheridan yeah. uh, cody smith mcphee obviously sophie turner and I, I don't think any of them are bad i think all of them are underserved mm-hmm. because this movie is so focused still on uh charles and eric and raven and yeah. hank uh and their reaction really more to what jeans uh what jeans actions are like that's even when I saw this movie the first time, and I, I will I will say for the record, I did like this movie a little bit better the second time. I still yeah. don't love this movie. It's still probably my least favorite. It's still actually still solidly my least favorite of the of these four. Mm-hmm. I do prefer Apocalypse, even though I know people are gonna uh, yeah. disagree with that, <laughs> which is fair. It's very over. It's very over stuffed, and uh, Oscar Isaac's doing uh, whatever he can there. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're good. I no hard feelings. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I do forget where I was going with that. I do like, <laughs> I did like the, the character stuff in this movie more, even when I didn't like it as much the first time, I really appreciated that moment where Hank shows up on, uh, on the Island and tells, <laughs> tells Genosha. Eric what's going on. Yeah. Genosha. Thank you. And tells Eric what happened to Raven. And then it's like, all of a sudden Hank and, and Eric are on the same side because as they have, and and again, all the all the best scenes from this movie are the quiet moments. Really, the yeah. big bombastic, like set pieces. I feel like don't hold a candle to, like you were saying earlier, Fastbender's reaction when Gene Gray's like, "Hey, you've killed people," and he's like, you know, he, he's, he's such that Michael Fassbender has such incredible instincts as a performer. Yeah, that 
even little moments like that, you're like, man, he's so and unbelievably watchable, even in a movie like, like this that costs what, 200 million or whatever this thing? Yeah, 200 million. <laughs> no. Like he, those little moments, the little reactions are elevate the material so much, but they have that scene uh, where they're, they're saying, you know, I know we've had our differences, but we, we both love Raven. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was really, you know, that was a really great little we've, moment we've of connection slept with, with her. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's unclear of what the nature of Magneto and Mystique's relationships right. is. And it's also unclear how far her and Hank went. <laughs> but yeah, no, you do get, because it, it, I always get the feeling that Hank's feelings for her have always been mostly unrequited because he gets that I love you, Raven, you know, at the end that maybe they never quite pursued a relationship what is, is that your take do you think that they she had uh, romantic relationships with each of them at varying points or is it sure. uh, is there a little why, more not? <laughs> why not i think that it gives like an interesting kind of spin on it like again they they kind of hint at it in the original with with remain stamos and mckellen like yeah. they hinted that stuff you know what yeah. i mean it's more interesting to hint at than it is to kind of really delve into. i think so i think in days of future past that really says that they've they've kind of dabbled a little bit that scene in the phone booth you're yeah. like there you go it's it's, it's, it's kind of <laughs> exactly. sweaty in here guys what's going on yeah exactly. um, yeah yeah no totally and i don't know because we know i think gene and scott share a room in the mansion right they, believe, they live together by this point yeah by this point they definitely yeah, have but they, you they never see couple. hank and and Raven in the same room. So I don't know. It, it's up in the air. It's it's interesting to think about more than yeah. The kind of yeah, yeah. you don't need to dramatize that. I don't think it's just no, no. I don't think so. It's it's a leave it implied, right? But Nicholas Holt like feels like he finally his character for the first time really kind of finally has something to do because yeah. in all the other movies he's just like I really like Raven or I I hang out with Charles I help him with stuff and that's pretty much what he's done the last three movies yeah. uh, in large part. So it's 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 cool that like you mentioned that scene with him and Charles where he blames Charles for, for what happened to Raven and he sort of lashes out. And I'm like, finally, <laughs> we get a little, like he, he takes a little more agency uh, in one of these right. movies. Do you think his, <laughs> do you think his, cause my, I watched this with my wife. She hadn't, this is the only X-Men movie she hadn't seen. Mm. Uh, so I watched it with her for this, for this podcast. She thinks she, she was sort of questioning whether Hank's sort of his desire to want to kill Gene felt out of character. Do you think the movie substantiates that enough knowing that he's usually very sort of mindful and logic? He's like the Spock of this X-Men team, essentially. (laughs) It makes an impact. You know what I mean? I mean, this is, I think Raven means more to him than anybody on that team. And I think that they're seen together when she, she passes and he's just watching her. I think that sells it. Like you said, it's a little small moment. I think they really sell that. You never know. Like I could be, I think I'm a logical person, but if something were to happen to my wife, I don't know if I'm going to snap. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's hard to say. I can't, I mean, logic wise. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, eh, I don't know if Hank would go that far to those extremes, but I don't know. I've never had somebody <laughs> that close to me ripped from my fingers yeah. like that. You know what I mean? After from somebody that I've defended, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and they were going to leave. Like he says, it's all, it's all this stuff. And he's even more upset because Charles won't admit that he was wrong. All he says is, uh, he says, all you need to do is tell me you are wrong and I'll be, I'll be on a path to, to be okay with this. And Charles can't do it. Right. Mm-hmm. So that, I think that's where, so I don't know. You could, <laughs> again, I'm not going to, if you say that it's out of character, I'm not going to waste a lot of energy saying that you're wrong. Like it's, it's just yeah. not that kind of movie that I can muster that kind of excitement for. I, I, again, there are some interesting things that go on, but it's not something that I'm going to, you know, 
you know, beat my chest with my fists and say, ah, I love this. It's not that kind of thing. But, you know, like you're saying about Holt, like I do want to talk about Chastain, <laughs> who is oh, such a boy. strong performer. I love her. She's, first of all, she's gorgeous, right? And she's yeah. talented and she's funny. So it's, it's, she's, it's unfair. Like the existence <laughs> of Jessica Chastain is unfair, yeah. right? First of all, making her a blonde. Don't, don't do that. Like you're, you're stripping away something that's part of her personality. Right. And second, yeah. like she literally, <laughs> there is a part where she's talking, she has Jean up on a stairwell and then Eric comes in and she literally, when they're, when Eric and Jean are talking, she backs off and folds her arms. I'm like, that's the instruction <laughs> that you gave her. Like, this is what Jessica Chastain has been called to do. You know what I mean? It's like anybody could have played this part. Why do you have Jessica Chastain in here? And you're taking away her red hair and she's, she's not able to bring anything to this. I think it's sad again, that the MCU messes with this movie so much that they couldn't do the scrolls. They couldn't do what, and the, the negative thing about Kinberg is he didn't really come up with a smart solution. Like the, the villains in here is so, even though they run funny, you know what I mean? It's, they don't really make much of an impact. And I don't know. It's just, that's, I can defend anything in this movie. Really. I can go and say, yeah, but you know, that kind of thing. But the, the, the Vuck character is like, what, what did they, they, this is what they came up with. Like they couldn't be the scrolls. So this is what they did. Like what's, <laughs> what's happening? Yeah, I was like, I was like, go fuck yourself movie. Like, seriously, <laughs> this is what, you get, you get such an incredibly charismatic yeah. actress mm-hmm. and playing a character who's, completely drained of charisma. She's just completely monotone and that's the character she's playing. And there's not really any, like you said, there's not really anything for her to do. And her, her being blonde already, it's, she feels sort of something feels off and otherworldly with that character before she's impersonated by a a shape-shifting alien. So it's like on no level does, does it work? And the remarkable thing is I guess Chastain and Kinberg hit it off because she's in the three, five, five, which is the only other movie he's directed, which was also a big flop and critically kind of maligned. So I don't, I don't understand. They must just really, (laughs) uh, you know, get along well or something. I don't, I don't understand. Well, I get that she's, this Vuck character is supposed to be an amalgam of the Empress Lelandra. She's supposed to be a mastermind a little bit, a little bit of Emma Frost from the comics. Like she serves, at certain points, she does the things that those three characters do in the comics. It's just so strange that you can't give her more to do. You can't give, you know, like that's, there's there's nothing interesting that she does in this movie at all. Other than the fact, oh, it's Jessica Mm -hmm. Chastain. There's nothing and they hint at, I like when Eric goes in, he's like, what are you? Like, he doesn't even know, but they don't delve into that. I I like the, the first time I watched this movie, I watched it kind of begrudgingly. Cause it's like, well, I guess I got to get this X-Men movie out of the way. Right. And <laughs> yeah. I ended up watching the whole thing. I just thought about the time that Jean goes to see Eric and he, again, she keeps going to these people that she thinks these men in her life, really, that she thinks are going to give her the guidance that she needs. And her father doesn't do it. Her father says, I didn't want you. Charles obviously didn't do it. Cause he's, he's kind of tamping her energy down. Eric says, literally says, get out of here. We don't want you here. Right. And it's finally, a woman that we find that it's not a woman but it's a woman character who sits down with her and says don't tap down your powers right live the powers like you've got to let you've got to embrace them and even though mystique is a a support system she still tells gene don't 
you know, hide it, run from it. Don't embrace these things, right? So it finally takes someone to sit down and tell her to embrace her powers that Jean kind of finds herself. But then again, it turns out that this person just wants to use the Phoenix Force. She's manipulating her to get the Phoenix Force so they can get revenge on, you know, the, the Phoenix Force decimating their planet. So all that stuff kept me involved. It's it's just so sad seeing Chastain, of all people, get nothing to do in this movie. She can't even walk like in that, high heels. <laughs> you see close up on her feet, she can't even walk. I feel like that sort of feminist read on it, like, a, you know, women supporting women that sort of plays into some of the subtext of those scenes. Yeah. I feel like that must be what she connected to because, yeah. you know, uh, you knowing her reputation and what she cares about and how, who she is in the industry, like, I feel like that might have been her way in. It's just unfortunate that it's not really doesn't really elevate this movie or contribute much to it. It's a sort of a, a an aside, if any, if that at yeah. best an aside. Yeah. I don't, it's, it's very frustrating. It's weak. There's no defending that stuff. There's, it's just, I, I don't do know it. how much of this movie is focused on that character, but like, I would be interested to see like a 90 minute version of this. It just takes the Dabari out of it or something. <laughs> yeah. Because I feel like it would, like I said earlier, I think it would be so much, uh, so much more um, cohesive as a story. And we would miss things like the train sequence, which is pretty fun. There's some cool like Nightcrawler and, and Magneto moments on there. And, and apparently these superheroes killed with no problem. The Nightcrawler <laughs> takes out several people right. on that train. Well, so that was pretty fun. The, I do want to talk about the action scenes. There, there's nothing as expansive as calling all no. the Avengers and having them run across a field to like fight a bunch of, there's nothing like that. Right. No. And the action, I mean, if you look at the action scenes, yeah, there's a space shuttle thing, but it's character focused. Yep. The, you have the scene where on Genosha, like you have where, where Gene and Eric are trying to control the helicopter. I thought that was cool. It yeah. looks so, it's, it's physical. Fun. It's it's not CG. It feels like there's weight to it. It feels like those are actual helicopters. I don't know if they are. I think they sell the illusions. I can't even tell it's CG or not. They feel I, real. I also... I also liked it's sort of the inverse of the end of Apocalypse because at the end of Apocalypse, the two of them are rebuilding the school, one using telekinesis, one using his powers to control metal. And yeah. here it's like the complete opposite. They're one's trying to lift it up, one's trying to tear it down. Right, right. I know that the the crossing the street action scene gets out because it's silly that they're just trying to cross the street. But the, the way that they use their powers in that scene is so clever. I like how, you know, Xavier keeps messing with people's minds, including beast. And then they have Scott who's, who uses like Kurt to get him across the street. I like how they have the other. So I think Feline is the character, like Eric's kind of protege, how she's trying to manipulate her. And then it cuts. And finally, uh, Scott uses his his eye blast to to bounce it off of a side view mirror. I thought that was clever. And then you have like so Kurt's in control, and and Charles is like, "Are you okay?" And he goes, "No." I thought that was really funny. I like that you know he pulls the tra- again. He pulls the Eric pulls the train from under the subway from under the ground, and that scene where yeah. he walks into the building and it's an actual train that they push behind him, and it it was so real that they lost control of it. And he, if you watch, Fastbender almost gets hit by some of the debris, but he keeps, he, he's in character. He stays in character. So it sells that physical stuff. And then when you cut to the, which again, the, the other big problem with this movie, it just feels like you have this, this action scene on the street and then you have a little respite. You have that, that creepy scene where Gene like walks Charles up the stairs. I thought that was really that yeah. hit hard. And then you yeah, end that, but definitely. then 
automatically we're in another action scene between there doesn't seem to be a lot of talking and yeah eric apologizes but when the action i what i liked about that train scene is number one i couldn't tell that it was a reshoot i thought that it, it kind of fit like you know you, you hear about the reshoot stuff it's like well the reshoot stuff sounds worse than what we got right mm-hmm. i mean having them on a train and isn't it funny after the disney merger how the it's the mutant containment unit which is the yes. MCU. You can see the MCU <laughs> on their arms. I thought that was really clever and meta. That tra- but, <laughs> the train's taking them to Kevin Feige's office. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, the robot overlord that we learned in Chile. Yeah. Anyway, so the choreography and the way that that scene is, it, you never lose track of where anybody is. And if you watch, there's a part where, you know, Eric says, help storm. He yells the beast and beast jumps up to the right. And then it cuts and you see Scott shoot his eye beam at, at somebody that's trying to come into the top of the train. And when it cuts outside the train, the direction matches where Scott shot from. And then you see beast like leap from the right where he leaped off screen from. So the choreography is, is really well done in that train sequence. And when, it crashes and when Jean kind of uses her powers uh, to lift it up like there it sells it it feels real it looks cool I don't think that there's any I don't have any problems with that action scene I do like too it ties in at the very beginning of the movie you see with the car crash there's a quick shot of of little girl Jean she's got a protective bubble over herself but not over her parents and in the train scene where she crashes it to get rid of the Dabari she's got those protective bubbles over all of the people that she cares about I really like I like that that's a neat great little touch that they put in there right and that works and so there are parts of this movie and then like we talked about it ends with charles and eric playing chess which is it brings it all back like there there's such a great movie that's buried in all this other stuff you know what i mean it's it's that's what i think makes it such a frustrating experience is you said it yourself like it you can see parts that work and then there are other parts that are just they don't they don't mesh with everything else yeah no, it's true. It's I'm glad, I'm also glad you mentioned the the scene of Gene making Charles walk up the stairs because I Oof. was even when I saw that in theaters I was like I don't I, I don't know if this is offensive to to <laughs> as someone yeah. to to you right, know right. D- disabled community or or you know uh, I guess differently abled community like I it felt mm-hmm. I don't know if that if it is but it felt like it felt questionable. It felt like almost exploitative in some way, mm-hmm. even though that's kind of the idea. So uh, yeah, I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned it. Cause that, Them- that was one of the moments that stuck in my head the most. Yeah. Thematically it, it, I think it works thematically too. You, yeah. I, I didn't realize this until now. If you're doing a story about PTSD and about mental illness and Jean is being put upon all of a sudden she's using Charles as a literal puppet. It's like you're, yeah. you're becoming the person that you hate. Right. I mean, you're going, you're, and I think that's what really hits with that moment. And I just, I didn't really realize it or focus on it until now, but I think it's her taking the pain that she's been giving and inflicting it on other people. That's where I think she's gone too far. And I think that's how Charles is able to tell her, look inside and, and see, uh, you know, what, what I'm trying to do. Like, obviously I was wrong, but I'm, I have your best interests at heart. I think, yeah, thematically, I think that all works They're They're the screenplay works from that perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Um, I also liked a couple things I wanted to point out that I, I thought was right, was were interesting. Uh, one, Mystique's death in this movie still kind of fits with the uh, Days of Future Past coda because we don't get any reference of whether she's alive or not yeah, in yeah. that. So with the revised timeline, 
Uh, we also get a, a cameo by Halston Sage as da- mm-hmm. Dazzler. Finally, Dazzler. <laughs> Am I supposed to say finally? Yes. I, I mean, <laughs> only because I, I think in Apocalypse there was there were like rumors, reports that Taylor Swift was going to cameo in the film or something, or her image was going to be in as Dazzler. And yeah. you know, if you're going for like kind of a fun take on this world, having a a mutant who's a pop star who kind of makes I forget what her power is now. She like makes makes visuals based on her her musical notes or something i forget what it is like that's 100 (laughs) percent something i could see them throw into she's taylor swift in real life yeah exactly (laughs) exactly she's on the eras the eras tour and there there's you uh there's your your tie-in with the mcu (laughs) also we get sort of a a kind of uh half-hearted reference to oh you know what they're calling you the phoenix uh in in this movie very they have a very much like the Dark Knights whole. Uh, I see here they have another name for me in IA, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for Harvey Two Face as well. Um, and also, we sort of mentioned with Magneto when he when he finally confronts Gene and he's like, "I know whose blood that was." Yeah. Uh, I love that moment. Do you think the MCU is going to try this story yet again, or which yes. of these movies <laughs> that was fast? Which of these uh, which of these storylines that this franchise has covered so far do you think we're going to get? Uh, I think we're going to get another apocalypse or something like pretty early on into the MCU's X-Men. I'm so tired, Rob. <laughs> when when they announced that X, they were taking the X-Men, I was like, oh, like uh, that just exhausted me. I was like, this is never going to end, right? Like it's it just keeps getting heavier and hammers like, oh, I don't know. And a- again, Jackman is coming back, even though he said he was done, like even though it's in a Deadpool movie, he's back. That's he's, a, he's in his outfit yeah. from the comics. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, they're going to totally throw that, the X-Men nineties uh, theme on there, I think as well. I mean, they kind of did a little in multiverse of madness. Right. I wouldn't be surprised. Like that's different. And I've said this on, on this podcast series before Deadpool, Deadpool three. It's, it's sort of, that's your free pass. That's yeah. your like <laughs> farewell tour to you. Jackman's Wolverine to, uh, everyone who's been in any of these Fox movies, like throw them all in there, give them all their moment and then move on fresh with, uh, <laughs> with something else. I, I, the only, the only thing is that I, I really want to see Daphne Keene as X 23 as yeah, Laura. She needs to come back. Right. Right. <laughs> she's, she's so great. Uh, and I hope that when they do do the X-Men in the MCU, that they start with Charles and the, Eric the, and the main people yeah. in the comics, not Wolverine. Yes. No Wolverine. Don't give us anyone with adamantium claws for a while. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And I hope that they do that. I feel like, I, I feel like they're going to try and learn lessons from these movies. We'll see. But then again, the MCU right now, not doing so hot generally. Yeah. So well, we will see. After guardians three, I think I'm just done. Like I, I think the Marvels looks fine. Like I don't have anything yeah. against them. It's just, I've got so many other movies. I still need to watch that. The MCU stuff is not, a priority for me anymore it's, it's yeah so i sure do this story again i don't care i'm not i'm not gonna watch <laughs> it like i'm just i'm just so tired of this whole experiment right i know but the i guess the only last things that i want to say because i think we said looking at my notes i think we said everything i do like that there are some nice cross-cutting between things i like that xavier has the uh, school for gifted youngsters and then um, Eric also has Genosha. So he has his own kind of hideout for mutants, right? And because they're two sides of the same coin. It's like, I really like that touch. I like when 
again, he finds out whose blood it is. And then Eric goes to, I like that Eric keeps everything from his past locked away in this uh, kind of chest. And he pulls out his helmet and puts it on. Yep. And then it cuts to Charles taking I, the Cerebra yep. helmet off. I'm like, oh, I cool. noticed that too. And yeah. then the, the thing that we haven't talked about, I think that this movie has the, the best score out of all the X-Men movies. And, and again, really? that's biased because I think I'm, I'm a, again, I'm a huge Zimmer fan. He's my favorite working composer. Yeah. I like that. It's a callback to his like Pacific Heights days in some moments. I like the, he's got three main themes. He's got the gene themes, kind of a light piano kind of thing. He's got Eric's theme, which is more of a, again, like a metal sounding. And then he's got the X-Men theme, the da da, you know, that theme, which is so, sinister it seems like at the beginning and that be, that's the x-men's theme because there's always something that's underlying what they're doing but then at the end when they're on the train zimmer twists that theme he raises it an octave so that it becomes more of a heroic it plays the same notes but it because it plays it at a higher level it becomes a heroic theme instead of a sinister theme i just think that <laughs> out of everything i think zimmer's and when i say i think it's the strongest i just think that the strongest score i think that it works as a band-aid to a lot of the things that's happening in here. I just think that the score is very strong where again, him having the the female chorus on the soundtrack is a callback to the chorus from uh, amazing Spider-Man two, where he's got like the chanting. And in that movie, it was stupid because they didn't put any character in. So they're like, Oh, Zimmer come in here and help us out. And he did that. I think the female voices in this work more as a support, as opposed to trying to force the story. I think it actually works here. I don't know. I'm, I really like the score to this movie. I think it's the only score to this franchise that I haven't really listened to aside from, you know, in the film itself. So I might have to go in and give that a listen, uh, just, you know, kind of isolate it on its own and see how it holds up. Yeah. yeah the, the music I think in most of these films across the board has been, even in, when the movies aren't great, usually I think the music is pretty, is pretty solid. Uh, last stands stands out. Like yeah. I thought John Powell's Origins. work there was really fun. Origins is okay, I guess. Harry Gregson yeah. Williams, uh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I could give it that. I mean, I I will say this. Maybe this this movie, I I like it slightly more than I did the first time. I still think it's better than Origins. Yeah, yeah. So I, if nothing else, I think most <laughs> we, of us can agree this is better than X Men Origins Wolverine. We would have to separate as friends, Rob, if you chose. <laughs> because yeah, there this there are some things that work in here. I don't think besides Jackman. Who yeah, and again, he's he's good in every X-Men movie. So you don't yeah, need or yeah. using him as well, Jackman's good. I'm like, well, he's good in everything, so that's it doesn't count, right? It doesn't that doesn't matter, you know. That kind of thing. But yeah, it's like this how I would rate them, I don't usually rate things. I think this movie is more of a two and a half star movie where I could see the stuff that it's trying to do, it just doesn't do a lot of it well, but at least it's trying. It's not like a generic well, it is generic, but at least some of it is trying to not be generic. I don't know if that makes any sense. It's not a perfect movie by any means. I don't I don't think it's a good movie. I just I don't think it's terrible. It it's fine. Like as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's pretty much where I where I am for this yeah. film as well. Yeah. Before we get to if you have a full ranking of these ten movies, I'll take it. But if all if you don't, like oh, do. okay, well, we'll get to that. First first before we do that. What do you think is the legacy of the X-Men movie franchise? What does it contribute to cinema, the superhero genre, et cetera, like 20-something years in? Well, we mentioned it before. Without X-Men, there would be no 
Batman Begins. There would be no Raimi Spider-Man. There would be no MCU. And again, look at X-Men 2000. It's quaint. We'll, we'll talk about a little bit more when we talk about my ranking here, but there are still things that work like gangbusters in that movie. If not for the X-Men, we would not be where we're at. And yeah, you look at Endgame and then you watch this and they don't really compare, right? But mm-hmm. I can't... I can't let the, I can't, when people say that they hate the X-Men movies, I'm like, yeah, but some of them are without a doubt better and stronger than anything the MCU, at least two or three of them are stronger than anything the MCU has done. The MCU, besides maybe Black Panther, it doesn't have a Logan in it, right? So I think that, like we talked about before, it helped give birth to the comic book movie boom that we still haven't kind of stepped away from. It's still going, there is a little bit of a pushback now, uh, thanks to Thor love and thunder and a bunch of the, the iffy special effects things in the MCU, but the, you've got to have, you got to give them props, man. They, they were a little richer when they really tried when they had full control and without the X-Men, there would be no superhero movies today. So you have to give them that, right? I think that's where the legacy is. And there are going to be good or bad movies in any franchise. It's just strange that the MCU has had more films, but it's not as derided as maybe half as many X-Men films as MCU films. Yeah. Well, it's the thing is that the MCU has their their little zone and they stay in that zone 90% of the time. And so it's usually, at worst, fine, watchable, yeah, decent, for, but formulaic and lacking in grander scope or ambition. These movies swing big, Mm -hmm. sometimes don't work, sometimes do work, but they try different things. You know, there's, there's a time travel movie. There's a Western, there's, there's a, an Egyptian God. (laughs) Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a movie set in different, in different decades that I feel like there's a case to be made that First class very feels very much like a movie of the sixties. Days of Future Past feels very much like a movie of the seventies. Uh, Apocalypse feels very much like a movie of the eighties. And you were saying with nineties superhero movies, this feels kind of like a movie of uh, a movie of the nineties. Like they they fit within those genres, and I think that's sort of a an interesting take on on this franchise and these characters. Yeah. On its best day, the MC will not have a line as subtextual and funny as have you tried not being a mutant? Yeah. Right? They're so that's such a loaded line of dialogue. And they don't again, other than maybe the Guardians movies and Black Panther, they don't really delve that deep in that franchise. They don't swing for the fences like these swing. I'd rather you swing than not swing at all. Yeah. Right. Than just definitely. get walks every time. So yeah, that's its legacy. So that being said. Uh, what is your what is your ranking of these ten movies, uh, starting with I guess the bottom, which I'm okay. assuming I know what that is. <laughs> well, do you want me to go in? Like, I don't want to make this another forty five minutes long, but you want me to give at least a little synopsis of why yeah, I of rated course. it. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is also this is also the last episode of this mega okay. series, so well, it's a nice way to sort of put a final stamp on on this franchise. Right, right. Okay. Well, the bottom obviously is going to be Wolver- X Men Origins Wolverine. <laughs> I just don't think anything works. I think it's an embarrassment to look at. It yeah. looks so bad. Like, how do you even having Jackman hold like metal looking plastic claws between his fingers <laughs> looks better than whatever the hell they're doing with the the claws in X Men Origins? Scenes? Yeah. Oh like my that. gosh! It looks when they <sighs> leaked that movie. 
by accident and then Rothman that idiot was trying to say oh the movie's not this and then it turned out to be that right <laughs> like they didn't even try it just everything about it looks so bad at least yeah. in this movie in feet and dark phoenix when they do 70s stuff it feels like the 70s they didn't even try to do any of that there's no sense of place and nothing about x-men origins works not that's even the one that, that doesn't swing at all basically at all what it, yeah and what's funniest about it is at the end of x2 after two movies of, of logan saying i've got to find out about my past i've got to find, and then literally confronted with striker he's like I don't care. I'm going to take my chances with him. My past doesn't matter. And then <laughs> you have a movie that's all about his past. It regresses so bad. And then he forgets it all. I'm like, what? What are we even doing at this point, guys? You know what I mean? And then, to, and then too, again, the inconsistencies in this franchise, which people will have heard me mention in the Logan episode. In that movie, he's carrying an adamantium bullet to kill himself, possibly. <laughs> but then I'm thinking to myself, no, dude, that's just going to erase your memory. <laughs> that's not going to... We've seen how this plays out. You know, X-Men has that line, you know what happens to a frog when it's struck by... That's a dumb line, right? But it's yeah. not the worst. Even, I would say Catwoman is probably my least favorite superhero movie of all time. It's just so yeah. terrible and insulting. But even every line of dialogue is to a point. There is nothing as stupid and insulting and moronic as... You're going to shoot him in the head. It won't work. And, and Stryker says his brain may heal, but his memories won't grow back. It's like, what the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> when you watch the, what is this? Right. It's like, what? What? Yeah. So anyway, so it's just everything about it doesn't work. Even and, the future movies, like they, 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 they try and erase that movie. They're like, yeah, that one didn't happen. We'll yeah, yeah. That's the yeah. only one. So yeah. X-Men Origins Wolverine is the only one that I hate. Out of all of these. Yeah. Like X-Men and Last Stand, which is my next one, it has parts at work. Like Jeremiah said, it it goes by fast. Like Ratner is such a good chameleon. Like when he does rush hour movies, he looks like he shoots it like they shoot Jackie Chan movies. When he did Red Dragon, it looks and feels like Signs of the Lambs or or um uh, Hannibal, stuff like that. It kind of fits in. If you turn off the sound to X-Men The Last Stand, you'd be you'd think it was made by the same people. I just think that after X2 was so rich in story and set up so many great storylines, Last Stand and Brett Radner and, and uh, again, Kinberg and Zach Penn, they have no idea what to do with any of that. It's just a quick, it's a rush job. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's so it's brave that they kill off Charles. It's brave that they kill off uh, Xavier. It's brave that they get rid of Magneto's powers at the end. But then it backs, it steps back and it Magneto, oh, Magneto, he didn't lose his powers. Right. Oh, Charles is still alive. It's such a chicken shit movie <laughs> at the end of the day. It's like, don't take those big swings if you're just going to pull your punches at the end. Right. right. Kind of mixing sports metaphors there. But yeah, uh, there again, it, it moves pretty fast. There are parts that are that are funny. I hate Juggernaut. I hate that whole character. He's a juggernaut, bitch. Yeah. What? What? <laughs> uh, Elliot Page is great. And so, again, yeah. everybody does a fine job. It's just like we talked about. It's got the gifted storyline mixed with the Dark Phoenix story. And it they don't tie in at all. It, no. Even Spider-Man 3, even though they shoved Venom in there, right? It, it at least works thematically. Like, I don't think the Phoenix story works at all. I, I, I think X3 is more like Jurassic Park 3. Where it's like you have the first two that have Spielberg's richness and his mastery of the filmmaking, and then it kind of forgets all that and it doesn't even delve in the philosophy of the first two. It's just kind of a dumb B movie. I think that's what The Last Stand is, and I guess it's enjoyable. Yeah. After that, I've got Apocalypse next up. I, I think my problem with that one is after Days of Future Past, it's just so ordinary like there's nothing you'd think would be a step up but it's a step back like there's nothing yeah. new about it it just repeats again dark phoenix does that but apocalypse just, but 
I think that there's some rich imagery. That whole opening in Egypt is so it's such a fun sequence to watch and it looks great, right? Yeah. I think that opening sequence alone has better visuals than anything in Captain America Civil War, which came out the same year, right? I think there's more interesting visuals and, and ideas going on and themes in Apocalypse than most of the MCU. But again, it's just so ordinary. Oscar Isaac has the Jessica Chastain role. He doesn't get to do anything. Like it's it's still yeah. more interesting than Vuck. Like yeah, I mean, still because he at least the, gets to whisper and then yell. He gets to yeah. do like the red main Jupiter ascending, like whisper yell thing. So that's right, always right. fun, I guess. Yeah. So yeah. other than that, I can't really. And again, the Quicksilver scene—it's fun, but it's just Brian Singer trying to again further what he did with Days of Future Past. So all that kind yeah. they have Wolverine in there. It's a fun sequence, whatever. So it's it's a whatever movie. That's fair. Above that, I have Dark Phoenix. I think Dark Phoenix is the last one that I'm. I like this one. I would say that I like it. Right after that, after that one, it kind of gets. Eh, I didn't need this. Like I don't need this. Um, yeah. And obviously, we talked about that. I debated. I think I've got, and it sounds bad, but I've got the first X Men right above that one. I think it's a compromise movie. If people aren't aware, Tom Rothman, that idiot who's in charge of Fox at the time, who just cared about the opening weekend. And that ties in with X-Men origins, Wolverine. He had no faith in X-Men. He kept cutting back on the budget and it's to Brian Singer's credit and the cast credit that that movie works as well as it does. I think in your episode on X2, Phoenix, uh, our, our mutual friend, he said that, uh, maybe I'm getting it right, but he said that the X-Men are kind of bland compared to the comic book movies we get today, the look of them. But I don't, I think there's more visuals. There's a part where Charles goes into the senator's mind and sees what happens. And that whole thing is visually so interesting. It's it's so interesting to look at, right? I think it does have some great ideas that shine through all the compromises. And again, I think it's a miracle that it works as well as it does. Yeah. The up from that, I've got the Wolverine, which at times I think the Wolverine is a better Wolverine movie than Logan. I think that the you know Logan's arc in it, I like the J- Japanese setting i think it's rich visually i like his relationships with the different characters i think that all works and then the movie just becomes x-men dark phoenix and apocalypse for the last (laughs) half an hour right yep that's everybody's big complaint with that one and it's valid it's so dumb because the rest of the movie i think is is pretty strong and it ends with some a visually strong scene of him you know wolverine and you know he's he's cutting out the you know, he's cutting into his chest to remove that little thing that's that's been attached to him. Yeah. As there's a sword fight going on, that's interesting and it's dramatic. I think that works. And then again, it just becomes a stupid, you know, fighting a giant robot, samurai, you know, snake lady. It just, it feels so weird. It's like, oh, you know, Mangle, we let you have all this other stuff, but, you know, it's time to right, let, exactly. give us what we want, right? So <laughs> the, the, it's, Yeah, the check is due now. You're like, yeah, God. it's they half a great me. movie. Yeah, <laughs> right. And then controversially, I've got Logan as my fourth favorite. I, like we've talked about it. I think that it works dramatically. I think that it works for as a Western or as a statement or as a dark night of the series. I just think it's weird watching a movie like Night and Day, which Mangold also directed, and seeing the action in that one be character driven and how at the end of every action scene, the Diaz character is different and she's learned something and she's in a different place. The action in Logan and the action in Wolverine, I mean, going back to Wolverine for a second, it's got a great scene on a speeding bullet train. Yeah. But number one, that's Mission Impossible. 
like the Palma. And number two, you could completely cut out that scene and the characters don't have any change. They get on the train, they get off the train. There's no real difference. It's just thrown in there. It just, I don't think he integrates his action as well. And yeah, Logan is rated R, but the 50th time you see him jab his claws through somebody's skull, I'm like, okay, I get it. You know, it's like, it's so repetitive as far as the action goes. There's literally a part where the, um, and again, there's a clone of Logan, which is the same thing as a clone. Yeah, of- <laughs> I, that, that, that is one of my big, Deadpool? one of my sticking points with that movie it, it, is it the works. clone thing. It works thematically. Again, you're seeing what what Wolverine was as he's animalistic personality. But there's a part where where X24 is uh, he's attacking the farmers, right? Yeah. And there's there's maybe four or five farmers, and you see like he attack he cuts off one head, and then it cuts to a shot of of Logan with Xavier, and then he's putting him into a truck, and then you see X24 in the background, and there's one guy left. And then it cuts back and you have that whole scene, great scene with uh, Patrick Stewart and, you know, uh, Jackman talking about the yeah. boat and how they were going to escape. And, you know, the whole idea of um, Patrick Stewart being his father figure who's kind of losing his mind yeah. and that kind of ties in with real stuff. So they have this whole scene that lasts about a, a minute and you hear all this huh, ha, huh, like in the background and then it cuts back and it's still Logan fighting the one guy. <laughs> <laughs> after after like 30 seconds to a minute i just think that the action is so it's repetitive it's logan gets beat up he gets mad he fights back that's every right. action scene for the whole thing so action wise i don't think it works but dramatically i think it works that's where it, it kind of it's lower on my list where it would be at the top of everybody else's yeah third is first class because it's got a personality it's Matthew Vaughn through and through. He's, he's got his love of Bond, his love of the 60s mixed in there. You introduce McAvoy. You introduce Fastback. If we're talking about, you know, cross-cutting, you have the scene where Magneto is killing those two Nazis in the bar. He's killing people that he hates. And then I think it cross-cuts with Charles at a party where everybody's celebrating it. Like, it, the whole movie does stuff like that, right? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't end, it doesn't line up with the other X-Men's, but it, like I said, I think it's Vaughn saying, this is the story that I want to tell. Oh, but it doesn't tie in. Like, I don't give two shits about how it doesn't tie in. I'm <laughs> telling my story the way I want it told, right? And so I love all that stuff. Again, you introduce all these, you know, Jennifer Lawrence obviously made a big, big splash. You have that great, again, the Hugh Jackman cameo. So I just think that as an X-Men movie, it's the first movie in that series that feels like it's an X-Men movie and not just Wolverine and the X-Men. Right. One thing I want to I want to pitch you on because I'm trying to manifest this uh, because I have a feeling not a feeling but I I I I want the the powers that be at, at Marvel Studios to not screw up their version of the X-Men and I feel like Vaughn kind of got his opportunity sort of prematurely ripped from his hands. How would you feel if if they announce tomorrow, Kevin Feige is like, oh, we're doing the X-Men. Matthew Vaughn is coming on to co-write and direct uh, the, the, you know, their entrance into the MCU. Damn it. <laughs> Just when I thought it was out, you pull me back in. I mean, there's, <laughs> okay, good. There's a chance. To, you know, I'm interested if you put an interesting filmmaker in. I just think, I hope that they don't tap him down and say, well, you can do all this, right. but we also need you to do this. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah, because most most of these other uh, filmmakers, for various reasons, uh, not coming back anytime soon. <laughs> so uh, I think he's the like the sole filmmaker who's worked in this franchise who I think has a good shot at maybe getting to uh, play in the sandbox again. 
Yeah. So yeah, I'm interested in filmmakers. I'm interested more yeah. in filmmakers than franchises. Yeah. So bring, yeah. bring it right. Whatever. Likewise. Okay. So my number two, I've got X2 and I tweeted about it just recently. I watched it again, just like I watched the first X-Men again. When you, two points I want to make about X2. Number one, in 2003, watching X2 in a theater, it felt so new. Like comic book movies could only do certain things. Like even Batman Returns, which is fascinating. It, it's still just a Tim Burton movie. I mean, it's, it's, it has a lot of loose ends. It's interesting to watch. But X2, the way that they play with the characters, the way that it's not just black and white, the way that you have the scene where Magneto is being uh, you know abused in his plastic cell, and when he fights back, you're cheering for the bad guy to beat worse mm-hmm. bad guys. It's just got this character play that was just felt so refreshing and so new. And then watching, and then obviously the X-Men informed like the MCU stuff like that. Watching X2 again, 20 years after the fact, it like came full circle. It feels like this is what comic book movies used to be. Comic book movies used to take chances and they used to feel like a separate entity from the rest of the fast food processed franchises, right? And so it's just, it's fun watching X2 20 years after the fact. I think Jeremiah said something that I disagree with. I, yeah, the Nightcrawler scene is super strong, but so is Magneto's jailbreak. So yes, is, it is that Deathstrike Logan fight has such an energy to it. Watch how the camera moves. If you watch it again, it bounces in and out and it's just so there's no, I don't know. It's just, it, there's got a real physicality to that, that scene and you can feel it. Whereas most action scenes today are just the Avengers running at the Avengers across an abandoned gray parking lot. Like what's visually exciting about that. Right. And I just think that that death strike scene is so interesting and it's got such a good energy to it. And that whole, you know, the mansion attack is so great. I just think that there's, there are God tier action sequences in that movie that other superhero movies have not been able to match. And the other point I want to make about X2 is X2, I think is the citizen Kane of this franchise. Because I don't know, other than a few, it, it doesn't seem, after X2 came out, it feels like that was the last one that had, was its own thing. And after that, it became studio controlled until your days of future past, until your Logan, stuff like that, right? I mean, yeah. it never, they never had that same kind of freedom. And again, when Rothman camped down on the first X-Men, when it became such a big hit, Singer was able to pool his resources, screenwriters that he knew, like executives that he knew. And he had a creative freedom on X2 that you can feel when you watch it. There's a freedom to the action scenes and to the character work that isn't there in the first one. And it became such a hit that if you were smart, you would tie down Singer to the third movie. Let's get him right now. Let's get him tied down to do it. But instead, Rothman is a sniveling kind of baby. He was so upset that Singer took it out of his hands that he drew out the negotiations. He waited and he waited and he waited until the point where Warner Brothers came to Singer and said, we know you like Superman. How would you like to make a Superman? And it was just too, Singer was like, I'm being strung along. I'm not going to do what I want to do. I'll go do Superman, right? And then (laughs) they made X3 to compete with Superman Returns. They rushed it to get out. But so, yeah, just after X2, I think it became kind of a compromise franchise. I don't think it kind of reached that same level of care again until Days of Future Past, which is my yeah. number one. And I don't know, I think that's a better endgame than endgame. I, I like how it <laughs> joins the characters together. Even though yeah. McAvoy and Stewart don't look the same, their characters are so written that when they have that scene together, yeah, they're the same person. 
right? Just separated by decades. We and need you just, to hope again. Yes. There's a powerful so, scene and then and the Ottman score. Yeah. In that film. Yeah, so good. It's it's if you pardon the pun, it's marvelous, right? I mean, it's <laughs> it's such a good entertainment and it's it's of a it just works. I think X2, the scene at Alkali Lake goes on, like the whole third act is like 45 minutes to 50 minutes long. Yeah. It goes on way too long. The juxtaposition between the future fighting of our heroes fighting the Sentinels, juxtaposed with our heroes in the 60s fighting the Sentinels, I think it's masterful stuff. And then like I said, they pull Wolverine out of the situation so that we can come back and have it be about McAvoy Really, it's about Charles and Raven, right? The whole first class, it ends because Charles just can't, he can't let her go, right? He's got to control her. And at the end of Days of Future Past, he's like, I'm not going to control you. I know you have it in you to do a good thing. I'm just going to let you decide what you want to do. You be your own person. And that's what ends that movie. And then, yeah, I mean, it. <laughs> I've never seen it before. Having Logan wake up in the present or future, wherever you are, and having Famke Jansen be there. Back as Gene, having James Marsden, Kelsey Grammer, Kelsey Grammer, just for a quick second. You yeah. know what I mean? It's it's like I went crazy in the theater. I almost started crying. So I was like, "Wow, why are they? How are they doing this? Like they're apologizing and they're correcting the mistakes of their past in this movie. What a great end of this franchise that didn't end up ending." So <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it just I I think those top four. I think Days of Future Past, X Two, First Class, and Logan are so strong. Yeah. As far as the franchise, I don't know if the MCU has been able to match them. I, you know? I, and, and that, that top four is, I think, pretty ironclad. Like yeah. most of these episodes, when I've asked people to either do their ranking or their top three, those four movies are constantly mentioned at the top. And I think rightfully so, because that's my top four as well. Oh. Uh, I don't know. The order might shift depending on my mood, but I, doing this rewatch for these episodes, I was watching Days of Future Past and I was like, Damn it! I think it's. I think this is the one. I think this <laughs> yeah. is because I for the longest time I've had X two or Logan in the top spot, and I've had Days of Future Past like kind of in the middle, two, three, something like that. And rewatching it now, uh, I was just like, no, everything works. Like the character yeah. where the pacing is, it's epic in scope, but also still feels personal. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't rewatch the Rogue cut, which is uh, I don't know if you've seen that, but yeah. that has like yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that do you? How do you feel about that version of the movie? Do you think it, it adds to it, or you or is it just extra footage we don't need? It's it's nice having Anna Paquin in there. Um, it's just it's extra time that they don't need. Like it's it's streamlined yeah. without her. There's a part where they juxtapose them breaking her out of her prison with Magneto in in the sixties, breaking his helmet out of its kind of a right. trap that it's been in, and then. So that's great, but then it lessens the impact of the ending, like I said, when they cross-cut between the past and the... It, so it doesn't feel as impactful when you watch that ending after you've seen that middle part. I just... I like that Anna Paquin's in there, like I said. I just think that that version is superfluous. Personally, I think it's I think it's superfluous. I just... Right. So you, using past, the, go ahead, go ahead. No, as it is, I don't think it makes a false move. I think it's it's perfect right. for what it is, and it feels like a comic book movie. Right, a grand epic comic book movie. So I think that's, you know, it's not as deep as Logan. It doesn't have the same kind of thematic kind of oomph, but it still is a comic book movie. That's what I want to see. Like you said, it's still personal, but it's still fun. And it, like I said, it just never steps wrong. Yeah. No, I, I was going to say, uh, I think it sounds like you prefer the future stuff as more the bookends and sort of building that uh, yes. that tension towards the end of the film right, rather right. than rather than regularly. Cro- cutting back and forth. 
Yeah, it, it has more impact yeah. and it feels like it builds to that. So I just think it's masterful as it is. Yeah, there you go. Days of Future Past. It has been it has been decreed by, by franchise detours. <laughs> the the best X-Men movie, question mark. Yeah, I think I, I also think that's the one that a lot of people, you know, they remember seeing it, they remember it being good, but maybe go back and revisit it now with the space of nearly a decade. And, uh, you know, Brian Singer aside, reassess it a little bit. Because when I did the Planet of the Apes films, those, like, you know, Jason from Binge Movies, another mutual friend, Mm -hmm. he and I were talking about, like, this movie came out, made, like, $700 and it's possibly one of the best blockbusters of the last decade. Yes. And why why is nobody talking about it? Where are the memes from, or whatever, from Dawn of the Planet of the Apes? Like, why is it, like, seem to have no currency online anymore? Uh, I feel like Days of Future Past, which weirdly came out the same summer, I I feel like it's kind of in a similar spot. I think these, maybe both of those movies got overshadowed by uh, Guardians of the Galaxy and uh, Captain America, (laughs) the Winter Soldier, which came out the same summer. So yeah, definitely X-Men Days of Future Press. Great movie. Go go check it out. If you haven't already seen it, people listening. But yeah, that's all I have. Darren, this has been a blast. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. We we did epic fashion as usual. <laughs> Even with Dark Phoenix, you know, we Even with Dark Phoenix. It's it's so <laughs> Rob, I can't I do I think I do this every time. I can't express to you how much I appreciate your friendship and appreciate your conversations. It's I have a blast chatting with you. I, I thought it was funny. I think the only thing I rehearsed for this episode was, well, I'm not going to have as much to say about Dark Phoenix as I have to say about West Side Story or The Dark Knight. And then two hours later, yeah, here we, we are. wrap up. But again, it's it's such a rich history. It's not just this movie. We can't just chat uh, about exactly. that. So right, yeah. Thank you, thank think, you for bringing I, me on for this one. I guess, of course, of course. <laughs> and and as the end of this this uh, mega series, I think it, it it sort of behooves us to recap kind of everything that's come before and where this fits in the, not the timeline, obviously, (laughs) because where is that even? Yeah. But within the, uh, you know, this franchise and everything. So yeah, this was a blast. We'll definitely bring you back on here at some point in the future, but (laughs) tell everyone where they can find you on social media. Uh, Just at DW Lumberg on Twitter. That's the only place you'll find, or X, whatever, X. Yeah, I this know. is the one time I feel comfortable calling it X. I guess. Yeah, you can you can find me there. I'm just still going to call it Twitter. <laughs> Who cares? Who gives a shit? So everybody yeah. calls it that. Yeah, everybody will. It's still Twitter.com when you find it. So yeah, you can find me there. Please visit the Matrix episode that that we did with you. Like our '90s Palooza has been such a blast. We've had so many fun guests, and so many conversations, and. I think with our next season, we're going to hit episode 100. Uh, We've got something special planned for that as far as movies go. So yeah, check us out. We'll be around for the next little bit. Awesome. Thank you, my friend. We'll do this again soon. Absolutely. Big thanks to Darren Lundberg of Nostalgia Cast for coming on to discuss 2019's Dark Phoenix, a movie that, as I said, admittedly kind of grew on me a little bit. I I still think... Last Stand might be somewhat more rewatchable, but I don't really think either is air quotes good. Uh, but I want to know, where do you land on this? Which version of, which Simon Kimberg written or co-written version of the Dark Phoenix saga in the X-Men film franchise released by Fox in the 2000s and 2010s, uh, which one got the story closer to the to what you imagined the source material would be. Let me know. You can find me on social media all over the place 
at Crooked Table and via email at robert at crookedtable.com. We'll be back next episode with a bonus for our X-Men mega series. It's not that hard to guess what it might be. So stay tuned for that. Until then, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production. Catch you at the next stop, everyone. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. <laughs>